1: it got so bad?
2: But removal is an obliteration of the past.
1: It's February 2023 and suddenly it feels like everyone is talking about the same thing.
0: There's a controversy brewing in the world of publishing.
1: From TV to newspapers to social media. It is vandalism, it's censorship and I think it's extremely sinister. It's as if this great secret has been unearthed and in a way it has.
0: The arrogance of these censorious thugs knows no bounds.
1: Because for years, it seems, someone has been changing things.
0: But the changes have triggered a backlash.
1: Surreptitiously rubbing them out, vanishing them.
3: Aren't you ashamed of it? Isn't isn't yours a generation which is simply pathetic and frightened and suppressing
4: and puritanical?
1: It's a flashpoint in the culture war about, of all things, children's books. The Telegraph newspaper reveals that the most recent versions of the author Roald Dahl's stories have been modernised. Descriptions such as fat or mad or frisky have disappeared. Chambermaids are now gender-neutral cleaners, and the word weird has been dropped from the phrase, quote, weird African language. According to the publisher, Puffin... These, quote, relatively small edits have been made to bring the stories up to date for young readers. Depending on who you are, it's either the moment that the world went mad or a giant fuss over nothing. But it put Puffin in the spotlight and raised uncomfortable questions for the publishing industry more widely. Over the years, Roald Dahl has come to present a problem for his publisher – both in his life, through his admitted anti-semitism, and in his writing, through his use of stereotypes and casual racism. But it's a problem that's far easier to explain away when the person responsible is long gone. It was a different time, people can say. But what if they're writing now? Because there was an elephant in the room when the Roald Dahl story suddenly became a scandal. Could some of the same charges that were being levelled at Roald Dahl, who was writing in the second half of the 20th century, be applied to another children's author, very much alive and still churning out enormously lucrative and popular books? Books that some shops refuse to stock and that some senior publishing figures have told us they don't like their own children reading.
2: Yeah, I love cruelty. (laughs) It's my favourite thing in the world.
1: How has David Williams escaped the Roald Dahl treatment? This week on the slow newscast from Tortoise, I'm handing over to my colleague Claudia Williams, who for weeks has been talking to leading figures in the publishing industry, from editors to best-selling authors, about the multi-million pound author who has supposedly inherited Roald Dahl's crown. Like Roald Dahl is to Puffin, David Walliams is a golden goose for his publisher, HarperCollins. He is a literary phenomenon. And like Roald Dahl, he's a problem for HarperCollins to deal with. A children's author whose success is haunted by embarrassments on and off the page, from blacking up and leaving Britain's Got Talent after sexually explicit remarks were made public, to having a children's short story pulled over accusations of racism. This is Beastly, the story of David Walliams, and we're asking, what do you do with a star children's author who can't stop pushing the boundaries? Who gets to draw the line between humour and harm, between cruelty and comedy? And how do you keep a lucrative cultural asset from feeling outdated, sinking into irrelevance, or worse, getting cancelled? Over to Claudia.
5: When I was little, I loved Roald Dahl. My sister and I used to call our very loud, very tall dad the BFG. As a five-year-old, I listened to a tape of The Giraffe, The Pelly and Me that my grandma had so many times, I still sometimes find the theme tune popping into my head. I recently sent a version of that song to my sister. She replied in seconds, saying simply, instant nostalgia. We are far from alone. His books have sold more than 300 million copies. And he has a pretty good claim to be the most popular and successful children's author ever. You can buy BFG bath sets, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory baking kits, and revolting recipes kitchen towels. He is a literary and commercial juggernaut, a genius of the macabre. He was also a known anti-Semite. In 1983, he said the Holocaust was justified. In a 1990 interview with the Independent newspaper, he explicitly acknowledged that he had, quote, become anti-Semitic. And his books have been criticised for containing both racism and misogyny. In 2020, his publishers Puffin and the Roald Dahl Story Company, run by the author's family, embarked on a process of updating and editing his works. They made hundreds of what they call... Small and considered changes to the author's copy so that it could continue to be enjoyed by all. The following passage from The Witches has been removed.
2: I simply cannot tell you how awful they were. And somehow the whole site was made more grotesque because underneath those frightfully scabby, bald heads, the bodies were dressed in fashionable and rather pretty clothes. It was monstrous. It was unnatural.
5: After all, new editions of books often get updated for modern readers, and it wasn't the first time the Roald Dahl books had been edited. The Umpa in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory were changed from black to white as a response to widespread accusations of racism. In the 1970s film, they were changed to orange. Then came that Telegraph article in February this year, and the story went viral. The Puffin team who worked on edits, Tortoise understands, weren't prepared for the scale of the backlash. They didn't see it coming. The problem for Puffin and for the Roald Dahl story company is that selling someone who's known to be, as one author told me, a nasty piece of work, has become more complicated. Even a beloved genius like Roald Dahl... We now know more than ever before about the authors whose books we read, dead or alive. And the line between the art and the artist has never been so blurred. If an author becomes known more for their behaviour or views off the page, and people start to think that behaviour doesn't match the image they're buying into, it affects the brand and the sales. It was only in December of 2020, 30 years after he confirmed his racist beliefs, that the Roald Dahl Story Company formally acknowledged and apologised for his anti-Semitism. The apology was long overdue. They were playing catch-up. But keep in mind that 2020, the year the editing process was initiated, was the year of the Black Lives Matter protests, a time of political reckoning, personal and commercial. 2020 also happens to be the same year the Roald Dahl Story Company was in the process of being sold to Netflix in a hugely lucrative deal. Did Puffin and the Roald Dahl Story Company have more than just accessibility in mind when they decided to update the stories?
0: Netflix has bought the works of renowned children's author Roald Dahl. He's perhaps best known for the books Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda and the Witches
5: were the edits a clumsy attempt to sanitise Roald Dahl's estate prior to a business deal worth over £500 million? Pounds? When we put these points to the company, a spokesperson said there was no discussion with any potential parties about a sale when the decision was taken to make the changes to the books. But the edits highlight a question facing all the companies and publishers responsible for big estates. How does an ageing franchise keep pace with changing social attitudes? It's not just Roald Dahl. Newly edited versions of Agatha Christie crime novels were published recently, and Ian Fleming's estate have confirmed that passages will be changed from the James Bond books. And the thing about editing out passages entirely or making changes is that you don't actually have to acknowledge that they were there in the first place. It is a pretty smart way of quietly burying the elements modern readers or viewers might find distasteful. It stops your golden goose from becoming tarnished. And it's a much easier process when the author is no longer around to disagree and no longer writing any more books. You are working with a clearly defined legacy. But what if the author is one of your biggest current assets?
4: Let's go through the rundown of uh, your achievements to date. Three BAFTAs, and Emmy, single-handedly raised what was a million with your yes. uh, comic relief. I'm glad you're saying swim. these things, because if I, I say, say them, them it can't. sounds quite arrogant.
2: It
5: would, but it's, it's
4: easy for me to say them.
5: It's 2009, and BBC presenter Kirsty Young is running through comedian David Walliams' showbiz achievements on Radio 4's Desert Island Discs.
4: I missed out some of your important awards, including... <laughs> no.
2: Only that you said, I didn't want to say it, but you said we won one Emmy and we've won two.
5: By the end of the noughties, David Walliams was famed as one half of the comedy duo, alongside Matt Lucas, responsible for global hit Little Britain. It was consciously provocative and, to many, offensive. David Walliams and Matt Lucas played all of the characters... From Teen Mum stereotype Vicky Pollard.
0: Yeah, but new, but yeah, but new because i would never even had sex apart from that when team meet meant ago, but apart from that I'm
5: a complete virgin. To Desiree, a character David Williams or blackface to play.
2: Don't forget, sugar. We have a honeymoon massage at ten.
5: <laughs> when its follow-up mockumentary Come Fly With Me aired, the BBC was flooded with complaints. Both shows were fiercely debated at the time.
4: Comedy about being gay, such as Little Britain, risk encouraging stereotypes, or will bullies and bigots use any fuel they can find? With me is the TV editor of Time Out magazine, Alcarim Giovanni. Alcrim, interesting case this. When I first heard about it, I thought, um, the colleagues who taunted him as Sebastian, had they understood Little Britain or misunderstood it?
5: The comedians David Walliams and Matt Lucas have since apologised for some of the content of the show's. They were pulled from streaming services a couple of years ago, and they've subsequently been edited and re released. But the vein of the humour that runs through Little Britain, well, it still exists, only now it's for a much younger audience. After signing a two book deal with publisher HarperCollins, in 2008, David Walliams' debut children's novel, The Boy in the Dress, went straight to number one in the book charts. I've spoken to a fair few children's publishers over the past months. They still talk about the first week sales of that book in hushed tones 15 years later. And comparisons were quickly drawn between Williams and his own writing hero, Roald Dahl.
2: Because I suppose I was trailing a line with sort of darkness and humour, um, people make those comparisons. But I mean, it's, it's, it's lucky for me because he's my hero.
5: Just in case the parallels weren't quite obvious enough, HarperCollins commissioned Quentin Blake the man who illustrated all of Dahl's children's books, to illustrate David Walliams' first two books. The Association Stuck Whatever you think of him, David Walliams has gone on to become one of the most successful children's authors in a generation, producing more than 30 novels, short story collections and picture books, and selling over 50 million copies. As one publishing insider said to me, They are the type of sales you can't manufacture, not with all the star power in the world. Multiple parents have told me that David Walliams is the only reason their kids started reading. Kids have told me the same. He is an undeniable phenomenon. His second book, and last one with Quentin Blake, was Mr Stink in 2009. It is a tale about a young girl who befriends a particularly smelly man who turns out to be homeless. She sets out determined to help him and comes up against all the adults who stand in her way. Then there's Ratburger, Bad Dad, Demon Dentist, Awful Auntie, Grandpa's Great Escape, The Midnight Gang. I've spent a lot of my time reading these books recently and I have to admit I found myself laughing out loud more than once. I get why they're so popular and why kids are such fans of Walliams himself. The books are written in his voice. He is the mischievous, omniscient narrator and he speaks directly to his young readers. He tells them how to pull off pranks or get away with not brushing their teeth. He is the product. HarperCollins have had a field day. The commercial aim, I understand, is to have a David Walliams book for every age. There's actually an interactive tick list at the back of a copy of the books I have. Have you bought them all, it asks. And it doesn't stop at the books. There are plays, TV shows and even a theme park.
2: Experience the power of the towers. The excitement, the exhilaration and the gangster cranny. Check out my mega brilliant gangster granny ride.
5: In 2021, to celebrate its 40th anniversary, Alton Towers opened an area dedicated to the world of David Walliams, complete with a gangster granny ride and a very well stocked gift shop. To put it bluntly, David Walliams makes a lot of people a lot of money. By 2019, he had sold more than £100 million worth of books alone is crucial to the HarperCollins bottom line, the ultimate cash cow. And this is the problem that HarperCollins faces. The margins on book sales, well, they're tiny. Often publishers don't even make back the advances, the money they pay to writers to actually write the books. That means the financial success of someone like David Walliams can actually pay for other authors' books who don't sell as many copies. To put his sales in context, according to industry data, the current best-selling children's hardback book was his latest release, RoboDog. In early May, he sold nearly 6,000 copies in one week. For comparison, the next best-selling book on the chart sold under 4,000 copies. Two months ago, when the book was launched, RoboDog was recording sales five times higher than its recent figures. What this means in the publishing industry is that when someone like Walliams comes along, it is more than just a financial boost. It can be existentially vital. From my conversations with former and current HarperCollins employees, it's clear that everyone is pretty aware of how important Williams is to the income of the company. A senior publishing figure with knowledge of HarperCollins children's books joked that they could have an entirely separate David Walliams department. I understand that there's a whole machine ready to spring into gear to promote the books, to edit them, to design them. And, you'd imagine, to deal with David Walliams' mess. All celebrity authors come with baggage, and David Walliams is no different. For HarperCollins, it creates a problem. What do you do when your most lucrative and popular author does and says things that might damage the brand. In 2020, when the TV shows Williams and Lucas had made in the early noughties were removed, the BBC said that times had changed. After the announcement, Walliams tweeted...
0: Matt and I have both spoken publicly in recent years of our regret that we played characters of other races. Once again, we want to make it clear that it was wrong and we are very sorry.
5: Only three years earlier, in 2017... He had dressed up as North Korean leader Kim Jong-un for Halloween, complete with exaggerated prosthetics around the eyes. Last year, one particular Little Britain sketch, filmed in 2009 for a BBC documentary about a tour of Australia, went viral.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> and how old are you, Will? 18. And how old are you, Daniel? 17. And how old are you, Daniel? 16.
5: In the sketch, Williams plays the character Des Kay, an aging children's entertainer who hasn't quite come to terms with the fact he's no longer on TV. Des Kay has a particular interest in young male members of the audience, whom he invites on stage to play a game of hunt the sausage.
2: Come on, Taylor, relax. You're with your uncle Des. Say, say, say to your mum and dad, they can't help you now.
5: Okay. As the character, Des Kay, Williams kisses them, sometimes simulates sex with them, and tries to pull their trousers down by force in his attempt to find the sausage. It gets big laughs.
2: Yeah, I love cruelty. <laughs> it's my favourite thing in the world. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm...
5: But a few scenes later in the documentary, Williams is handed a letter sent in about the sketch. It's no,
2: it's a letter of complaint. From? But it's actually a bit serious. Somebody's saying they've been sexually molested, and I think the K character's too far. Really? Yeah. What? Charles. Dear Mr. Williams, I was shocked, dismayed, and disappointed by the character Deske, whose selection of a victim and consequent molestation of the boy seemed a great joke for me. This was not a joke for me. It went too far. I was molested when I was very uh, young. Would you reply
3: to
2: that? Uh, yeah, there is an address actually. I suppose you know, if it was a child, it wouldn't be funny. But because it's an adult, and we're on stage. To me, to me, there are no subjects that can't you can't make jokes out of. Because if you make that line,
5: even when it comes to a family show, David Williams can't seem to keep himself from controversy. In 2012, four years after his first book with HarperCollins came out. He became a judge on the family entertainment show Britain's Got Talent. He was popular, winning Best TV Judge at the National Television Awards multiple times. But last year he left under a cloud. In audio leaked to The Guardian newspaper, recorded during a live audition in 2020, he was captured making derogatory and sexually explicit remarks about contestants. He described one man a pensioner, as the C-word, three times. Of a woman, he said...
0: She's like the slightly boring girl you meet in the pub that thinks you want to fuck them, but you don't. I know she's just like, oh, fuck off. I was saying she thinks you want to fuck her, but you don't. It's the last thing on your mind. But she's like, yep, I bet you do. No, I don't. I had a bit of a boner, but now it's going. It's now shriveled up inside my body.
5: At the time, he apologised. And he said it was a private conversation. A spokesperson for Thames, the production company that makes Britain's Got Talent, told The Guardian it regarded the comment as private, but called the language inappropriate. I've spoken to more than a dozen Britain's Got Talent production staff. Some told me that David Walliams was a different person when he was off camera, quieter. One source told me that they weren't shocked by the remarks. They thought that David Walliams was the type of person who thinks he can get away with those kind of comments. Someone who has a known history of offensive humour. And then there's the interest in his private life. He is firmly on the celeb circuit. From his former marriage to supermodel Laura Stone to the series of much younger women he's been linked to by the tabloids and the reports about the number of busty Instagram models that his official Instagram account follows. It's not exactly what you get from, say, Gruffalo writer Julia Donaldson, is it? He's one of publishing's most gossiped-about men. There are stories about how flirtatious he is. I was told by one source he offered to put her in touch with his publisher, HarperCollins, numerous times and that he was persistent in contacting her. How to some it is flattering, and to others, less so. I've spoken to a lot of people in the publishing industry for this story. When I mentioned I was working on a story about a well-known children's author, it's amazing how many people assumed I was working on a piece about David Walliams before I even said anything. Many, including senior figures with inside knowledge of HarperCollins, would only talk on condition of anonymity. He is too big to criticise, they said. And people who have criticised him have faced a backlash. I spoke to bookshop owners who stopped stocking his books in 2018 and who received abusive messages from members of the public. That was the year David Walliams hosted the President's Club charity dinner.
2: It's an all-male affair, except for the 130 women who've been hired for the evening. One of the charity lots provides a flavour of the event, plastic surgery at a Harley Street clinic.
5: 360 powerful men from the worlds of business, finance and politics put on black tie to be waited on by 130 specially chosen female-only waiting staff. They were welcomed to the quote, most un PC event of the year, a social event that had, at that point, been running for over 30 years. It was exactly what you might imagine. Undercover reporting by Madison Marriage in the Financial Times revealed widespread sexual harassment of the women working at the event. Many hostesses were groped, subject to lewd remarks, and invited to join guests in private rooms at the Dorchester. No such allegations were directed against Williams, And after the FT investigation was published, he said he was appalled and that he hadn't witnessed any of the behaviours alleged. It was the third time he had hosted that event. During the evening, the opportunity to name a character in David Williams's next children's book was auctioned to the men in the room, alongside a night at Soho's windmill strip club and plastic surgery to add spice to your wife. Williams withdrew the prize offering shortly after the story broke. But we asked HarperCollins if a similar book-based lot had ever been auctioned at the President's Club before. If any of the characters in the Williams books were named after President's Club attendees. They didn't provide us with an answer. Tortoise understands that at least three other book-based lots were auctioned by David Williams for the President's Club, which were not withdrawn following the FT investigation in 2018. That year, he raised £300,000 for the charity by writing three bespoke children's books, a project that took him about a month to complete. While I've been working on this story, I've been trying to put myself in his publisher's shoes. Is David Walliams, their star author, just a problem waiting to happen? Surely, like Britain's Got Talent, like Little Britain like the now disbanded President's Club, there's a risk that the world of Walliams could all come crashing down. I wondered whether they had a strategy, how they dealt with these PR embarrassments. And as far as I can tell, the strategy is ignore, don't engage. And I get it. As a publisher, you'd want to keep these different versions of your million-pound man separate, wouldn't you? To distinguish, quite clearly, between the adult comedy the personal behaviour and the children's author, the man pictured in bookshops and assemblies with adoring fans the country over, the heir to Roald Dahl. You'd do anything to avoid blowing up your golden goose. But I don't think you can separate these versions of David Walliams. Not really. And I'm not talking about the distinction between art and artist here. What I mean is those different versions of David Walliams, well, they bleed into each other. Those other elements, the behaviours he has been criticised for since way back in the noughties, the stereotyping, the casual racism, the misogyny that he has since partially apologised for in relation to his TV career, well, they've seeped into the books too.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear
4: the beach waves, feel the warm breeze...
3: This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda, with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com.
5: As an adult reader, the books feel surprisingly sleazy, particularly the older ones. So, for example, in Gangster Granny, published in 2011, there's this joke where Ben's mum thinks that he's been reading Nuts, Lads magazine, and tells him it's normal to think about girls. Maybe these are the jokes of the parents. Maybe they go over the heads of the primary school children who are reading the books. But like Roald Dahl, the books have been quietly edited over time. In Billionaire Boy from 2010, Joe's dad has a gold digging teenage girlfriend whose only GCSE is in makeup. Originally, his dad had a thing for page three girls.
2: Joe's dad seemed to get over the split quickly and began going on dates with an endless parade of page three girls.
5: But in the text version I have from 2016, they're simply wildly unsuitable ladies. A HarperCollins spokesperson said,
4: all HarperCollins' authors and books go through the editorial process, and as part of that process, changes are sometimes made to books, post-publication,
5: in consultation with the author. Clearly, what is acceptable changes over time. Or maybe it was never quite right in the first place.
4: Hi there. I uh, wanted to jump on in here and share something. So it's been brought to my attention that this is book by David Williams. And within this book, there's a short story based on Brian Wong, who was never, ever wrong. And there's so many things to unravel here. In
5: 2021, the podcaster Georgie Ma posts a series of Instagram stories to her roughly 4,000 followers. She's been looking at a story published in David Williams's collection, The World's Worst Children. It's called Brian Wong, who is never ever wrong and it's a story about a boy who loves maths and loves being right. The tropes used throughout the story and illustrations which accompany it are racist Georgie says.
4: And the really disappointing thing about this is the the way how Brian has been illustrated because you can see it's just got the
5: stereotypical small eyes and the glasses and it's just complete casual racism. Her speech went viral. And in the autumn of 2021, just months after The World of David Walliams was opened at the theme park, Alton Towers, HarperCollins said, In consultation with our author and illustrator, we
4: can confirm that a new story will be written to replace Brian Wong in future editions of The World's Worst Children.
5: It is an interesting statement, one that doesn't actually acknowledge why the story was pulled. The whole saga blew over very quickly. And what did David Walliams say to the whole thing? Well, nothing. He declined to comment. Some senior publishing figures told me that they didn't, or wouldn't, want their kids to read the Walliams books. One said they felt some elements of the books were racist and couldn't believe they were allowed through the editorial process. In fact, the cookbook writer Jack Monroe called the books Little Britain for Kids. The audiobooks do have more than a touch of vintage David Walliams. Take The Demon Dentist.
2: Let me introduce myself. I am your new dentist. My name is Miss Root, but I ask all my little patients, like you, to call me Mummy. Mummy. So can I hear a great big, hello, money.
5: Although this time he doesn't play all of the characters.
2: Winnie peered at the boy. She slid along the sofa and her big fat face came close to his.
3: Oh my word, look at the boy's teat. My
2: what? said Alfie. Teat. My teat, replied Alfie.
3: Yes, why? Your
2: teeth! I think Winnie means your teeth.
3: Yes, that's what I said. T E E T H.
5: In The Demon Dentist, both book and audiobook, there is a running joke about Winnie, a flamboyantly dressed and jolly social worker whose accent and pronunciation is the subject of numerous jokes. It's the same for the head teacher with an exaggerated stammer.
2: If there was ever a competition to find the man most completely unsuited to being a headmaster, children scared him. Even his own reflection scared him. c come on now, settle da d- down Mr. Grey stammered when he was nervous.
5: Then there's Raj. He's come up in a lot of my conversations about the books. He's a beloved character who is in almost every book, In the audiobook, he's played by Nitin Ganatra. Raj is the adult the kids go to when they have problems. He's kind. He's sensitive. But he's also a lazy stereotype. He's a South Asian newsagent who speaks in non-standard English and is famous for being a cheapskate and trying to fleece his customers and sell them out-of-date food.
2: I have some excellent bags of pickled onion monster munch, only slightly out of date. 15 bags for the price of
4: 13. They're a British delicacy.
5: Following a TV adaptation of The Midnight Gang in 2018, the character Raj, who was played by Harish Patel, prompted outrage. Mohammed Shafiq, who was the chief executive of the Muslim rights group, the Ramadan Foundation, called the character deeply unacceptable and distasteful. Someone who worked on the books told me they felt some of the criticism of them was unfair. That specific descriptions or sections were taken out of context, that they were screenshotted for social media, that people missed the point. It is the same argument Lucas and Williams made for Little Britain years ago. They were making fun of stereotypes, not perpetuating them. And it's possible, isn't it, that what kids like in the David Walliams books are exactly the parts that some adults balk at. Like Dahl's books, his stories can be shocking. They are rife with bullying and shame and sneering. People are humiliated. People are shown up. They are cruel. But they also feel anarchic. They feel naughty. And anyway, maybe we need to give kids some more credit. They know a joke set up when they see one. As a child, I really loved reading. Sometimes my mum used to drop me off at a bookshop in Stockport and let me stay there while she did the shopping. I used to try to read a full book before she came back. There are so many books I read as a child that I still think about now. Characters I remember like they were real, Characters that change the way I think about the world and about other people. Being a children's author carries weight and responsibility. But it's a weight that doesn't just rest on the shoulders of authors. It is the publishers, too. Which brings me back to Hopper Collins. I shared one particular David Walliams extract that I've been thinking about a lot with Helen Gould, a sensitivity reader. It's taken from the book Billionaire Boy. In it, the protagonist, Joe, starts a new school. He meets another boy who is fat, like Joe. They get into an argument about, as the chapter title puts it, who is the fattiest. Shall I read it out? You don't have to. You can read it in your head. (laughs) You are visibly grimacing.
4: Oh! (laughs) Oh, no! Oh, no! Children have absolutely no reason not to point at someone and say you're fat you know what Mm -hmm. I mean they've got no tact they've got no um understanding that someone might not like that
5: are you happy talking about this we don't have I just yeah
4: it's just it's so I wanted to say it's shocking but it's not this has immediately catapulted me back into what's really got me is this bit down here where it says, how much do you weigh, said Bob. Well, I asked you first. Bob paused for a second, about eight stone. I'm seven stone, said Joe, lying. No way, you seven stone, said Bob angrily. I'm 12 stone and you are much fatter than me. The fact that they have specified what weights are fat and what are not. Imagine reading this if you are a child who is seven or eight or 12 stone. And yeah ouch ouch that is quite affecting and i've just seen the next line (laughs) i was eight stone when i was a baby (laughs) and i'm doing i'm doing like the the sort of shocked laughter thing i can't believe this got
5: past. okay i'll give you the book back yeah I spoke to BEAT, the eating disorder charity, and they told me that when they spoke to authors and publishers, they specifically advised not to include numerical weights, particularly not weights associated with a sense of shame or embarrassment, and particularly in books for children. It feels irresponsible to me that David Williams's publisher, his editors, the whole team of people, I am told, who work on every single one of these books, let that get published. These are references that will last for generations. Roald Dahl is proof of that. In fact, when the Roald Dahl story company apologised for his anti-Semitism, they said,
2: We hope that, just as he did at his best, at his absolute worst, Roald Dahl can help remind us of the lasting impact of words.
5: There's no easy answer to how publishers should or can deal with authors such as David Walliams or Roald Dahl. Helen Gould, the sensitivity reader, doesn't think that retrospectively editing books is much use. She says there's a risk that it hides the reality of the era in which they're written or the reality of the author's beliefs. She says a better option is to frame the book with an explanation, although that requires a publisher to acknowledge, in writing, their author's problems. Some authors, such as Philip Pullman and Frank Cottrell-Boyce, have said that if people don't like Roald Dahl, then maybe the best option, instead of editing him, is to read something else. Give the spotlight to new authors. That might make sense for readers, but it's probably not what the Roald Dahl Story Company, or Puffin, or Netflix, are going for. Multi-million-pound corporations interested in keeping a brand going as long as they can. When we approached Puffin for comment on this story, it said it acknowledged the importance of keeping Roald Dahl's classic texts in print. And it would be bringing out the Roald Dahl classic collection at the end of the year. So double the Roald Dahl for you to buy. When they cut the Brian Wong story, HarperCollins said, The update will be scheduled at the next
4: reprint as part of an ongoing commitment to regularly reviewing content.
5: It's a weak response to a book being pulled in 2021 over allegations of casual racism. An organisation devoted to the meaning and the beauty of words, reduced to relying on corporate doublespeak. In fact, all the statements I've been provided with or that I've read by HarperCollins during my reporting have seemed vague. I asked them about David Walliams' life off the page, the outburst on Britain's Got Talent, the President's Club. Their response ignored everything about their author's behaviour.
4: David Walliams is one of Britain's best-loved authors, and his storytelling has inspired many children to pick up a book for the first time, improving literacy amongst hard-to-reach audiences. His books and his unique ability to use humour have transformed... Countless.
5: And they didn't engage with my specific questions about casual racism, stereotyping and sleaze in the books either. They are, it seems, committed to pretending the problem doesn't exist. So are Alton Towers, by the way. They never got back to me about Williams either. David Williams is a comedian... He is a known provocateur who uses stereotypes in his work. He is an individual. He is entirely responsible for his own behaviour. Mr Williams was approached for comment. But HarperCollins is ultimately responsible for publishing his books. To me, they seem more committed to protecting their golden goose than really talking about the things that matter. And it feels short-sighted. They can try to subtly make changes and pretend there's no issue. Nothing going on here. But like Puffin and the Roald Dahl Story Company found out, sometimes it's best to be upfront. Particularly when the proof is there, in black and white, for everyone to read. This story was reported by me, Claudia Williams, and produced by Matt Russell. The fact-checking was by Xavier Greenwood, and the sound design was by Tom Birchall. The editor was Basher Cummings.
1: Tortoise.
2: Even on a budget...
0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past, for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.